Fitness, the anti-apartheid movement, and the Harlem Reclamation Project. Can't stop, won't stop. The decade that Indy Ace has held its majority on the local station board has been one of declining income, community involvement, and staff rights. Drastic changes to programming made without requisite consultation threaten the station's mission and diversity. WBAI belongs to the people. The board must reaffirm this connection. I have a wealth of ideas for outreach and fundraising, and I will work. Please vote for the entire Justice and Unity slate, endorsed by Tim Wise and others. Find out more about me at justiceunity.org. Hello, my name is Neil Voss, and I am running for a seat on the WBAI local station board. If elected to the WBAI local station board, I will oppose any attempt to sell, lease, or swap the WBAI license and signal. Also, if elected, I will address the main issues confronting WBAI, which are the shrinking membership roles and the lack of adequate funding. Thank you. Hello, my name is Maxine Harrison-Gallman. I am running for the WBAI Local Station Board because I've listened to WBAI for over 20 years, and I believe progressive media outlets must thrive. For over four years, I've volunteered hundreds of hours helping to keep WBAI in good standing with its listener base. I've learned a lot about WBAI, its listeners, and the limitations due to the lack of funds. For over 15 years, I've been active in my community, campaigning for progressive candidates. I've used my connections to help bring progressives to WBAI. I believe in creating collaborations with other groups to build and uplift WBAI as long as the station maintains its independence. Please vote for Maxine Harrison-Gallman for an active WBAI local station board. For more information, visit WBAI.org. WBAI New York. Please stay tuned for an announcement regarding WBAI's local station board election. Good evening and welcome to our live coverage of the State of the Union here on WBAI 99.5 FM New York. I'm Celeste Katz. I'm a reporter who's covered politics for many years, including for Newsweek and for uh, the Daily News right here in New York. I'm the co-host of Driving Forces here on WBAI on Thursdays at 5 o'clock, but uh, here tonight with you as part of special programming leading up to this evening's address by the president. So we're going to be bringing you tonight's full speech as well as the Democratic response and a lot more. And we're doing that in coordination with our sister station, that's WPFW. 89.3 in Washington. First, we're going to take some time to get ready to think about what could be in store on this big night because anything could happen, and hopefully also to hear from you because that's uh, one of the parts of this uh, program that I'm really looking forward to is hearing from you about what you expect to get out of this speech and what you don't. So we'll be taking calls a little later in the program. Make sure you have our number here. Write it down. 212-209- 2877. That's 
1-800-848-9888-877. Why are you interested in the State of the Union and what are you hoping to get out of it? So uh, there's a lot to talk about here uh, in terms of how exciting this is and how unusual it is in terms of the timing, in terms of the conflict that's going on between the president and Congress. We've just come out of one of the longest, the longest shutdowns in U.S. history, and we might be going into another one. And uh, that all that we're going to get to. There's a lot going on here. But what happens after the president's speech is also a big deal. And uh, tonight, the Democratic response to the State of the Union will be delivered by Stacey Abrams. She started the voting rights group Fair Fight Georgia after narrowly losing her bid to become the nation's first American, uh, African-American woman governor. Um, so that's why we have our first guest coming on with us, somebody who knows a lot about Stacey Abrams and knows quite a lot also about the uh, the cause that she is championing now. Um, that would be uh, Greg Pallast is joining us now. He's uh, an investigative reporter. He's been covering Stacey Abrams for quite a long time, and he has uh, uh, reported on her for Al Jazeera, Rolling Stone, and Democracy Now!, uh, probably best known here in the U.S. for his investigations of voter suppression, as we mentioned. Uh, that goes all the way back to a BBC report he did uh, in 2000 on uh, vote counting in the election in Florida. And you can see a lot of his reports in his recent film, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. So, Greg, thank you very much for helping us uh, kick off this show. Okay. I'm, I'm in fact, calling in uh, from Italy. It's, it's very exciting, by the way, that the Democratic Party has chosen Stacey Abrams uh, because she's brilliant, she's competent, articulate, but I, I do have to give you a... Um, uh, one disclosure, Please do. I am providing technical information and uh, legal information to her organization, Fair Fight Georgia, because okay. it's a non-partisan, non-profit organization. This is so it's not the political support. But I've been covering uh, Stacey Abrams since 2013. She was what she did. With, she broke with the Democratic Party in a way by saying she's not going to be silent about the fact that we have Jim Crow voting tactics which are crushing uh, the African-American vote and minority vote in the United States, in Georgia and throughout the country. And I had her on. Unfortunately, you know, again, it goes, I was on uh, Pacifica Station's Democracy Now!, but I'm on Al Jazeera, Rolling Stone, but the, the mainline media really ignored this whole issue. She put it on the front burner. And it's only because of Stacey Abrams that H.R. 1, Nancy Pelosi's first, the bill that she's allowing on the floor of the House of Representatives is to um, put an end to a number of these vote suppression tactics. Obviously, Trump ain't going to sign that bill, but finally it's on the Democratic Party agenda. So that's quite exciting. I, I don't know if she's going to bring it up here. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see what she's about to do tonight. I'm going to be very interested, even though obviously, you know, I, I'm a a nonpartisan fan of uh, Stacey Abrams. She's extraordinary. If you, if you get to meet her, do. Um, but I'm not sure she's necessarily the best choice for the Democrats right now. Oh, interesting. Uh, they're, not sure, they're not really short on Southern black female voters in the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. Right now, mm -hmm. Trump is going to be emphasizing that he has, you know, saved the industrial economy of America. He's talking to those white and industrial workers in Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, the six million mostly white men who switched from Barack Obama, voted for Barack Obama twice, then voted for Trump, who felt that they are not getting, and they weren't getting a fair shake 
in this economy. And he's going to be emphasizing that he was the guy that that uh, transformed NAFTA. Though, to tell you the truth, uh, I, I think the, the real story there, which is not covered in the U.S. press, is that AMLO, the, the uh, Andreas uh, Lopez Obrador, is the guy who really um, changed NAFTA to be more worker favorable. Uh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't Trump. Mm. He never got anywhere in, in two years until AMLO came in. I, uh, I, I want to stay on Stacey Abrams uh, for a yes. moment, just because you know so much about her. And I did look through, yes. you know, I saw you know, some of your uh, pieces about her and mm-hmm. about that whole, uh, well, I don't know, what would you, you, you can choose a word for what happened there in terms of... Uh, Theft! Theft! <laughs> okay. we have- no, no, I'm telling you truthfully, I, I actually did an analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, it was quite complicated for Salon.com, and where yeah. um, I, I, I sued Brian Kemp, the Secretary of State, who's running the election. He's also was the guy running for governor against Stacey right. Abrams. He removed over half a million voters from the voter rolls, and the year before the election, he did that. And I went through, I had all four Silicon Valley uh, uh, expert firms go through name by name, obviously using computers, and found that we were able to identify absolutely that 340,134 voters were wrongly removed by the Republican Brian Kemp. Um, and overwhelming blackout, it was a Jim Crow operation, this was lynching by laptop, I mean... It was horrific. Now he's not the only guy to do pull this stunt. Sure, we have uh, you know we have uh, you know a similar situation. I think as somebody who, by the way, is extremely interested in covering voting rights, voter suppression, covered the presidential uh, advisory commission. So you look at a a state like Kansas, for example, where you have Chris Kobach, same situation, running for governor, administrator of the election. uh, You know issues about uh, voter ID there, and uh, you know registrations and qualifications, and uh, you know there were purges going on elsewhere i think it was uh ohio certainly ohio ohio is one of the worst and michigan as well oh if it weren't for these purges trump wouldn't be president he he won michigan supposedly by ten thousand votes seventy five thousand votes were not counted we had that on democracy now we didn't have that on any of these so-called mainstream press now one of the things to Keep in mind again that's exciting about Stacey Abrams. Mm-hmm. She did form this nonpartisan, nonprofit group, Fair Fight Georgia, which is now Fair Fight Action because it's now spreading throughout the South. And um, to take on vote suppression, we haven't seen a Democratic Party leader, and she is definitely a party leader mm-hmm. now, um, take on this issue straight on because before it was always let's keep let's not talk about vote suppression you know that's a black issue that's a race issue we're not going to talk about those things we're because about, we'll lose vote we're going to talk about voter registration and voter fairness and you know uh, technology right. and all those things but we're not going to talk about the and we're there's not certainly talk are about it. there certainly are um you know there's more evidence i would tend to say, of issues of uh, suppression and uh, interference, uh, as far as I know, than of actual impersonation, say, at the polls, which is which is very, right. very that, rare. That, that, that the individual um, voter fraud right. doesn't exist. I mean, it's literally, and I'm... I've actually uh, looked this up. It's more likely to get hit by lightning than, than uh, have someone vote fraudulently, because you go to jail for five years for one vote. So but if this is stealing if this the votes is, wholesale. Um, if this is something that uh, you know, is such a foundational part of our democracy, I want to go back to the part where you said you weren't sure I mean, about 
Stacey Abrams being the right messenger for tonight? And is that just because the Democratic Party for so long, and some people would even say have taken for granted, um, you know, African-American women as voters, as very, you know, no, triple I, I prime reliable voters? PR. How do you think it's going to come you know, off? Just, I guess. How do you I'm, think it's going to come I off? Because I work with Stacey Abrams, and 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 she's and she's really articulate. I think one of the most uh, articulate and thoughtful leaders of the Democratic Party. I was just saying that from a PR point of view, you got to get those white voters, industrial workers in Michigan, Ohio, in, in the industrial upper Midwest, and maybe a guy like Tim Ryan out of Youngstown, Ohio. Mm. Uh, one of them. Can speak to them and that's the voters that the democrats need however mm-hmm. stacy abrams has take has broken the omerta of you know the the democratic party's failure to openly speak about racial vote suppression in fact when she spoke to me back in 2013 on camera for al jazeera and democracy now uh she when i brought up this vote suppression technique called cross check used by chris kobach sure. of kansas sure. that's who you were just mentioning yeah she's the first democratic party official just said straight up oh chris kobach you mean the the racist <laughs> you know and she, you know, she's not afraid to use the term racism which has been kind of erased from the democratic party discussion like ooh, you're gonna spook white people or something no, it's time we had that we take this straight on because the Democrats are just going to lose and lose and lose unless they take it straight on. But I think that it will be interesting to see her also, and I'm hoping that she'll take on the wider issues mm-hmm. um, that that the Trump is sure to jump on. Like, uh, you know, he's you know he's brought back uh, factory jobs from Mexico, etc. I think that she that I'm hoping that she will bring up the issue that yeah, there are more jobs. But they ain't paying nothing, and if and if Trump is going to take away your health care, now let me let me remind you, Stacey Abrams made health care her number one issue, and that's why if it weren't for the theft, she absolutely would have won the governorship, where there's an overwhelming majority of white voters because she spoke to their big concern, health care, and if she can concentrate on health care tonight, she's going to win big against Agent Orange. Um, do you think that, uh, and if you're just joining us, by the way, again, this is WBAI 99.5 FM New York and streaming live WBAI.org. We are speaking to Greg Pallast, uh, investigative reporter who knows a lot about the woman who will be delivering the Democratic response to tonight's State of the Union address, that being Stacey Abrams. So, Greg, um, I was wondering if they chose Stacey Abrams because she is symbolic of something or because she is an aspirational figure or because simply she is just the most, you know, sort of intellectually and optically and philosophically the most different person from Donald Trump they could find. What do you think think went into this into this decision? I think they're trying to show that the Democratic Party is, as they say, inclusive. Uh, But I think also, the other thing is that Stacey Abrams, in her um, really a winning, again, if not for the steal, a winning run for governor of Georgia, where two-thirds of the voters are white, uh, where um, she's a crossover figure, kind of like Obama, but quite different. She's She is unabashedly a progressive Democrat. She's from the left wing of the party. She's not afraid to take to take up the issues of of. We need health care in America, and Donald Trump is threatening health care. And she can articulate that like crazy. She's sincere. You believe her. She's not slick. 
I'm going to tell you, she's not, you know, like Obama inspirational. She's not going to talk about hope and change and blah, blah. She's a kind of meat and potatoes. I'm going to protect your family type of Democrat. And will and she can explain the progressive agenda in very clear terms. And you just like her. She just has that kind of average, you know, kind of the average person's concerns, even though obviously she's a, you know, she's a, you know, from Ivy League school, legal education, et cetera. Sure. She's a, yeah, she's so, got a lot know, going on. She's a, a know, businesswoman, you know, no an question. author, a lawyer, uh, yeah. you know, a public activist. But at the same time, interestingly enough, she may have some commonality with a lot of Americans. For example, she talked uh, openly and extensively about falling into debt, personal debt, and having to get on yeah. a, a payment plan. I think that's something that a lot of people can relate to. Um, I know she had student debts and she also had a help. Well, the other thing is, for example, she had a health care issue. She had ailing parents mm-hmm. so she could tell her own story. And she had to borrow money to um, to basically take care of their of their you know end of life uh, uh, health uh, economic burden. It was, you know, a terrific and horrific personal story. And yeah. And so she had to go to the IRS, which allows it if you can take a. Uh, you can spread your tax payments over time if you have a health care issue in your family. And so, you know, and they attacked her for that. For, in other words, how dare she um, talk about, you know, you know, she's re- you know, that somehow she was irresponsible. Irresponsible? She's talking about massively expensive health care in America. People understood what she was saying. So. And that's where she's very, very good. If she can get to those issues, and I'm hoping that she'll also – put in something for those industrial workers and remember georgia is not a it's not like it's a non-industrial state it's you know it's not all peanut farmers mm-hmm. you know and so i think that she understands how to speak to uh, to people across the nation and i, I you know it's i to me it's a in, in many ways it's a very good choice i was saying you know pr maybe you want a, a tim ryan but i'm i'm actually glad that the democratic party mm-hmm. did not say Stacey Abrams is a left-wing dangerous person, you know, because she is identified with the left of the party, and she doesn't, she's not afraid to say so. And I'm really glad that they didn't go with, you know, my God, a Chuck Schumer, that they did with the last response to Trump, where Pelosi and Schumer responded, and I couldn't think of any worse than, than elites from the coast. So here you have women from the South. You have uh, who can speak to the to common people and uh, in in the language of because she's had a common life with an extraordinary outcome. Absolutely. And I'm just wondering, you know, what do you think that what is her sort of mission tonight? Um, You know, maybe both for herself, since you're somebody that that knows her. I know she's. I believe still mulling a possible Senate run after what happened with uh, with Governor, but well, I think for herself, but also for the Democratic Party and maybe for the uh, for the country. What's her, what's her mission? Well, let's tonight? put it this way: uh, the, the Democratic Party is actually hoping to convince her to run for the U.S. Senate. Mm-hmm. Her heart's been set on being governor her whole life, and she just it just galls her that a that a you know a small minded little you know. Uh, a, a vote thief like Brian Kemp is governor, and I think she still has indicated that she'd rather have that executive power. She's an executive, you know, um, and she'd rather have that power than being in a chatting room uh, of senators. However, the Democratic Party 
needs another senator, and they are quite sure that Stacey Abrams is the one who can carry Georgia, especially in a presidential year. So part of this is kind of to push her as a main figure, and I think convince her to run for the Senate against uh, Sonny Perdue, the current uh, Republican kind of uh, right-wing whack job senator from Georgia, and that this will boost her and maybe convince her this is the moment to step into the national arena by being a senator. And you know, we can always hope that uh, this would additionally bring some more attention to what she's trying to do with fair fight in terms of uh, voter suppression and in terms of the way that we run our elections in this country. Because you do have, uh, to be fair, you do have the president uh, sometimes putting out some pretty uh, controversial and frankly incorrect uh, information about things like voter ID and things like, um, you know, uh, sort of the mechanisms that we use to to run and regulate our elections. So she might be kind of a foil to that. But I don't know. I can also see people just, she's the first uh, black woman ever to uh, to fill this role at the State of the Union. So that is historic in itself. Uh, I just wonder if the Democratic Party is, is trying to make a statement there. Well, I think that they are saying, um, you know, what, what Stacey Abrams was able to do was not only like I say, crossover and get a, a huge amount of the white vote in Georgia. Um, but also, she was able to uh, inspire uh, the minority vote. You had a higher, you had this over, huge turnout of black voters for Stacey Abrams. And I don't think it's because of her skin color. I mean, people have racial pride, but this is nothing new in America. We've had a black president. People are really excited by this woman because she was not Frank, she wasn't talking BS. She was talking, um, you know, meat, you know, food on the table, health care, jobs, education, you know, that Georgia can't be no, can't be the dumb state. You know, it's uh, you know, that it's it's got to break out and uh, reestablish itself at the educational forefront. And um, and and so I think that, you know, she took on those issues that are the winning issues for Democrats. And they have to remember what those winning issues mm-hmm. are. And that's health care. And that's education. And that's, you know, student loans. I mean, basically, she kind of did the kind of practical meat and potatoes version of the Bernie Sanders program. And that's the winning combo. That's what people vote for. In fact, the one thing I'll kind of now back up on my statement about speaking to the industrial workers in the Midwest, because I was in Ohio, I was in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. that everyone was shocked that, that Trump won. A lot of vote theft involved in that. But I should also say when I saw those industrial workers, the, like the UAW workers in uh, Dayton, Ohio, um, who switched um, from uh, from voting for Obama to voting for Trump. And by the way, not a small number of African-American voters in that, too, because they felt abandoned by the Democratic Party on these core issues. Stacey Abrams is bringing back their issues to the Democratic Party. And I hope that it's not just saying we're responding to Trump, but kind of maybe a signal that the Democratic Party is changing once again back to its roots being the party of the working class. And I think that's I think that's a very interesting point that you raise, and I think it's 
you know, pretty much exactly right in terms of uh, what the Democrats are, are said to need to do in this election, where people's uh, you know, minds and hearts are, are focused, which is these sort of, as you call them, kitchen table type issues of, you know, how am I going to, uh, you know, get this health care that I need? If I don't have insurance, how can I pay for insurance? How can I uh, pay off these loans? Uh, can I get a new job? Is it going to be enough to support my family and myself? Maybe I'm taking care of children and parents. I'm in that stage of life where I you know, have both sides of, of life sort of uh, crowding in on me. And I think that uh, she, uh, you know, she could probably speak or has, as you say, has spoken to a lot of those things in Georgia and um, will be able to bring them to the the national stage. I guess my, uh, and by the way, I appreciate you uh, joining us. So my last question probably is, what do you expect of Donald Trump tonight? What do you expect him to, to try to do? He, the early, the early uh, message is that there's going to be some sort, at least some part of it is going to be a unity theme, that he's going to call on people to work together for, for a, to make America great again or keep America great, whichever one we're on now. Well, I think it's not the type of unity speech that Barack Obama gave. I mean, the indications are from the speech that's been leaked is that it's basically do what I want. Let's all let's all get together and stop all these differences and do exactly what I want. Build this wall and, and shut up. And I think he's going to. Uh, so he's still going to hang, you know, beat on the idea that you are if you don't agree with him, you are splitting the country. So his kind of unity message is a bit inverse. That is, he's instead of saying, oh, let's all get together, he's going to say, if you don't join with me, you are divided. You, the Democratic Party, are dividing the nation. I think that's kind of the ugly tone that's going to come out of that. I think he's going to, by the way, also crow about over, you know, uh, just about uh, finish finishing off his coup d'etat in Venezuela. I'll be interested to see which Democrats give him a standing ovation for that one. Um, you know, there's a big split among the Democratic candidates. You have Tulsi Gabbard, um, Bernie Sanders, Sherrod Brown, and Liz Warren saying, uh, I don't think we should be uh, uh, telling another nation who they should have as right, president. They've elected their president. Anti-interventionist. And so Whereas on. Kirsten Gillibrand of New York um, has said we should recognize the the properly elected president, this guy, uh, Juan Guaido, which is interesting, by the way, Jill, Ms., uh, Senator Gillibrand, because there was never election with his name on the ballot. Even he doesn't claim he was he was elected. So, um, you know, it'll be interesting how he plays Venezuela. I think he's going to he's going to uh, play for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's also going to obviously talk about um, low the official low unemployment figures. But again, where Stacey Abrams come in is to say, they may be officially low, but when you, yeah, because if you have to have two jobs to stay alive, you're going to have a lot of people employed. Uh, but the economic condition of the average person is degrading. And if you threaten to take away their health care on top of it, um, it's going to be an American disaster. So he's going to pump up his uh, his numbers on unemployment. Um, mm-hmm. And and on he's going to also try to take claim for the shift in NAFTA. And as I said, that has to do with the change of the politics in Mexico, not with anything that Donald Trump has done. Uh, I think that um, so Trump will plan that. And of course, he's going to plan the wall. He may sure. leave open a little bit of a door because, you know, you, on Friday you have a group coming out, which is the so-called bipartisan group. And there'll probably be a little bit of wall, a little bit of lasers and Star Wars junk <laughs> on the border so that everyone has a way out of of not shutting down the government 
you know, he's going to avoid talk about the about the cruelty that he visited upon a million American families with his shutdown. I don't think Stacey Abrams is going to forget to mention that. I think that uh, I think know. that sounds I think that sounds uh, <laughs> yeah. that absolutely absolutely right. And uh, Greg Palast, if um, people want to uh, read more of your work, hear more of your work, see more of it, where should they look? Where can they go? Uh, go to gregpalast.com and look out for my article uh, from Venezuela. Okay, wonderful. Uh, Greg Palast is uh, an investigative reporter and an author. Uh, Pleasure to have him with us tonight. Definitely check out his website and check him out on Twitter at Greg underscore Palast as well. So uh, we are almost at the bottom of the hour here. Uh, WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live on WBAI.org. And this is special pre-State of the Union live coverage here at WBAI. Uh, I'm your host, Celeste Katz. I will be here until 9 p.m. And I think, actually, we are able to go right into our next guest. We have a lot of people uh, who are uh, are going to help us out, sort of figuring out how this is going to work. We've seen some predictions. We've seen some excerpts. But uh, this is this is going to require uh, professional help for me to, to figure this out. So we are uh, pleased to welcome to the program uh, Jeannie Zeno is our next guest. She's a professor of political science at Iona. She teaches about the presidency, Congress, the courts, civil liberties, and constitutional law. That's just for starters. And you may have heard her political commentary as well on Fox, NBC, CNN, BBC, and many more places. So thank you, Dr. Zeno, for joining me. Really appreciate it. Good to talk to you, Celeste. I know it's been a while. I, I, I we used to talk a lot when I was uh, at the Daily News, and I kind of uh, wandered around somewhere. So I'm glad to uh, I'm glad to be back on the phone with you. Um, <laughs> you as well, absolutely. Thank you. So um, okay, what what are we looking for tonight? What are we uh, uh, you know what are we expecting? Uh, best possible and worst possible, say outcomes. You know, it's the more I think of it, the more it, it seems like we're in a little bit of a, uh, or more than a little bit of a bizarre world as we go into this, his second, uh, Donald Trump's second State of the Union. We are, you know, just off of a shutdown, as everybody knows, the longest partial shutdown in history. We are about a week out of a potential another shutdown or an emergency. We have the president with a delayed State of the Union because they could not get to their um, you know, reach an agreement, and, and he decided for political reasons to take this drastic step. And yet we understand from the White House, as you've been discussing, the theme tonight is unification, unity, comedy, and bipartisanship. So, you know, I, I think it's going to be curious to see how this president could possibly, with a straight face, go in and make those claims. And you know, let's face it, he hasn't even taken 24 hours before the speech to be unified, bipartisan, you know, talk about coming together. He's just today been tweeting about Senate uh, Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. He had his statements on CBS the other day. I mean, so, you know, to me, it's a little bit of bizarre world. I mean, you know, I'm asking students to watch this and take this seriously And yet, you know, it's hard to imagine if this man is going to go out and talk about that, if he's going to actually not tweet tomorrow morning something that is, you know, almost exactly opposite of the message he gives. Do you think he's going to wait until tomorrow morning? (laughs) To your point, he usually doesn't. And so, you know, know, 
So we're hearing these things, and we could talk all about what we're hearing. You know, a theme of unity. They're going to stress potentially infrastructure reform for the umpteenth time. You know, finding some common ground on and important things like, you know, health care and AIDS and infrastructure. Um, and yet it, it, it's hard to take all of that very, very seriously because this is a president and a person that says one thing at one moment and then says something else. And it seems that he wants to take the tradition of the State of the Union seriously. That's at least what we're being told. And yet he hasn't seemed to want to take other traditions very seriously, like respect (laughs) and, you know, approaching the office and treating people with dignity. So, you know, we're in a little bit of of an odd time. And, and, you know, as I watch, you know, all of my friends in the media and I, too, you know, I'm always covering this and I will be tonight at New York One. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's it's hard to, you know, to to do that and and not say to people, you know, uh, we understand if you turn off tune out or don't, you know, really believe what you're hearing from, from you know, particularly this side, but almost all sides. I uh, So I'm curious, you know, as a, a, a professor, I know a lot of times, and I remember, I think we even did this with you sometimes uh, back at the Daily News for uh, State of the Union or State of the City or State of the State, whatever, but, you know, the kind of scorecard, the kind of grade, <laughs> you know, letter grading type of thing. Um, what, uh, what do you think the president has to do tonight, essentially to pass, maybe not to, you know, get an A plus and skip a grade and, and become the everlasting Prince of Peace, but, you know, just to, just to sort of get out of there unscathed versus what could cause him to fail. I'm just curious what you, what you think the sort of, you know, speed bumps are. Well, if history has been any guide, um, the bar is set fairly low for Donald Trump. So if he reads the teleprompter, stays on it, is somewhat um, ingratiating and warm, um, despite the fact he's entering now for the first time a divided Congress and a House controlled by Democrats. If he presents as presidential and he doesn't make any missteps, he sticks with the prompter, he will buy almost every media outlet left, right, and center. And most people, and I would include myself, get a passing grade. I mean, that's what we've seen in the past. And yet, if we also look at history, you know, within, again, 12, 24, 48 hours, he will say or do something that is head-scratching and almost beyond comprehension. And so, uh, you know, but, I, but I, un- I don't think he's going to change, and I don't think we're going to change. I think it'll be the same tonight. I think if he sticks to his message that he's been given and he sticks to the prompter, He'll get, you know, oh, it wasn't as bad as it could have been kind of reaction. Certainly he could probably do better, I'm assuming. Um, And, of course, we know he could, if he goes off message, do much, much worse. I don't think he will. And if you're just joining us, this is WBUI 99.5 FM New York, and we're streaming live on WBAI.org. This is our special State of the Union uh, pregame show here, and I'm Celeste Katz speaking with Gene Zeno of uh, Iona and uh, a political commentator who's helping us break this down. So um, at this point, uh, Professor, sort of in his tenure, um, you know, this is sort of a turning point, I guess, a midpoint-ish. Um, you know, some people are saying he's already a lame duck. I, you said that probably we're not going to change and he's not going to change because of this speech. Uh, why are we doing this? Just tradition? Just 
it's that day on the calendar? Because it's actually, as you said, not that day on the calendar. This was supposed to happen before, and it didn't. Yeah, I mean, we're doing it because Nancy Pelosi reinvited him and the president accepted. And it's something that he apparently really does want to do, obviously. Most presidents do. And it is a tradition. And, and it is an important tradition. Obviously, it's not a requirement in the Constitution that you go in and deliver it in person. But that has been the tradition in the modern presidency. And it's a time, you know, on the best of times, it's a time when most Americans can watch the same speech and view their president, get an assessment of how he, uh, maybe someday she, thinks they've done in the last year and what their plans are going forward. You can get some reaction from the opposition, as we'll hear from Stacey Abrams and maybe a few others after. Um, you know, so it is a very important point, but I think what is troubling as we look at where we are today is that it's very, very difficult with this president and in this environment to take what he says seriously. So if he comes out today, you know, and says that he wants to try to strike a deal on DACA, say, or he wants to, you know, do something along the lines that, you know, Barack Obama talked about, about in terms of, of, of cancer or something like that. It's hard, I think, for people, even his supporters sometimes, to trust that he is going to follow through on those promises and, of course, it's not just Donald Trump. He can't. He's not a king. He can't do things on his own. But what makes it hard is that he seems unwilling to work with the other side. Um, so, again, you know, that's what's so striking about this theme tonight of bipartisanship. We haven't seen that out of this president with a few exceptions. And I think one of the real high points of his administration has been the Criminal Justice Reform Act that passed last December with bipartisan support got very little discussion um, in the, you know, the popular media with so many other things going on. But that was a very important moment. And yet that was something that Republicans have traditionally and Democrats have traditionally, the establishment has wanted to do. Demo uh, you know, when he has followed through with those things, he has been, uh, you know, able to do them. But it's been few and far between. And uh, I just wonder if... Uh, Given the way this this whole presidency actually has been, and especially given how tumultuous this midterm uh, was, and sort of the new crop of people uh, coming in, uh, quite adamant about uh, opposing the president, uh, do you are you expecting anything wild tonight? I mean, I really feel like we've had people shout before, we've had some body language before, we've had things go on at the the State of the Union. What uh, you know, do you think this could go all go off the rails? <laughs> There's always a chance. We were just talking in class today about, you know, Joe Wilson, um, his comments. You just mentioned Sam Alito, uh, Justice Alito, in reaction to Barack Obama. I think it was 2010 on Citizens United. Yeah. We, of course, had, you know, afterwards, Michael Grimm threatening to throw a reporter off the balcony. So the State of the Union can be like a soap opera sometimes. And certainly tonight we may see some drama. I'm really not sure what to expect. I will say something that's going to be interesting, I think, just from a visual point, is going to look at the striking difference between the House Democrats and the House Republicans in terms of the sheer number of women and the sheer number of people who are from a variety of ethnicities and backgrounds and walks of life on the Democratic side. That is a huge, huge change in the Congress, in the House, and also in American history and American politics. And I think that visual alone is going to make tonight incredibly interesting. 
I think it's also important that we see a president who famously has difficulty dealing with women. Now, you know, his greatest challengers are the women sitting in front of him, particularly on the Democratic side, the woman sitting behind him, Nancy Pelosi, and the woman who's talking after him, Stacey Abrams, really bringing to the president a message that women have moved to a point, you know, 100 years almost after we got the right to vote, that we have moved to a point, not quite equality, but, but, but getting there in Congress, sort of approaching it. And on the Democratic side, we are finally seeing, um, if you juxtapose this with Kennedy, who did the response for the Democrats before, uh, a party that is recognizing where the strength and the power of this voice is. And so I think that's going to be another really important moment tonight. So I think a lot of what's going to be important tonight may not be so much what the president says, you know, maybe his, his demeanor to a certain extent, but it may be the responses and the reactions and the sheer force of the people who are in that room and on television listening to him and responding to him. It's a uh, it's very interesting and it's always it's it's always kind of an exciting night for me and I I look forward to it and people may say well you know it's just sort of a uh, you know cheerleading or jingoistic or whatever but I don't know I I get you get excited about it I get excited about it. Oh, I get so excited. It, it is like a huge celebration, you know, for political geeks this is like a great day voting day, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. There's all these days and that's why, you know, I think that, you know, I'm feeling a little having mixed feelings tonight because it feels like this is a president who's had two years, he's had time, and we haven't seen, you know, a, a sort of shift in, in demeanor and tone. Um, and I was particularly, and I don't know, it's silly to say, but disappointed as he's approaching a speech with a theme of unity to see what, what he's tweeting and what's coming out. So, you know, it, to me, I think it makes it more upsetting because... I do think these are important moments for us as a country, and yet, you know, it is really hard for me, Celeste, to look at young people who, you know, rightly say, but does this really matter? I mean, you know, even people, we have students who like the president. They have supported him. They like the unemployment numbers. They think he's done a good job in some ways, and yet they feel, uh, you know, that this is, you know, this is more show, more, more television, more pomp and less something that they can take seriously. And, you know, it's hard to counter that in this environment. Absolutely. So, uh, Professor Zeno, if people want to learn more about you and your research and your work, where should they look? Where can they go? They can go to my Twitter feed, um, at Jeannie Zeno. I sometimes post things there. I'm, I'm doing some fascinating work way across the world in Pakistan and India as I uh, you know, got a little tired after 2016 and went to the other part of the world. <laughs> so I, I'm looking for other things to do. <laughs> glad to uh, glad to have you back and glad to have you here on WBAI. Really, really appreciate that you could join us tonight. So good to talk to you, Celeste, and always so fun to catch up with you. Absolutely. We'll do it again soon. Take care. Hey, thanks. Um, so that was, again, that was uh, Jeannie Zeno. She is a uh, uh, PhD, uh, uh, teaches political science, does uh, political analysis, commentary, somebody I've, I've been uh, asking about politics for uh, quite a long time, and uh, um, I thought it would be a, a good addition to our program here today. Uh, so this is, in case you're just joining us, uh, special pre-State of the Union coverage here, WBAI. 
99.5 FM, and we're streaming live on WBAI.org. So many people I wanted to talk to about uh, the State of the Union and the Democratic response and what it all means. And uh, speaking of people that I've been asking about politics for quite a while, quite a while, our next guest happens to be Daryl West. He is Vice President and Director of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution in Washington. He's also Founding Director of the Center for Technology Innovation, and he's Editor-in-Chief of Tech Tank. Some of his recent research focuses on artificial intelligence, robotics, and the future of work. Before Brookings, he was director of the Taubman Center for Public Policy at Brown University, where I happened to meet him, and uh, he was actually my statistics professor. So full disclosure, uh, he uh, has been my teacher, and I did get an A, and he will confirm it when he gets on the air. Professor West is the author or co-author of 24 books, including Divided Politics, Divided Nation, which is out from Brookings Institution Press this year. So Professor West, as always, a pleasure to talk to you. Celeste, it's nice to be with you. Oh, my God. Well, and congratulations on the new book. I feel like I can't even read one of your books before you have another one coming out. It's like a little, you know, I feel, I feel a little stressed out with all this. It's too, too productive. <laughs> um, well, hopefully it's a good time for the book. It's about political polarization in America, and basically it is a family memoir. So I talk about uh, 40 years of conversations with uh, family members and colleagues. Which is cool. first of all, that's just you, you always you do have a talent for the the perfect segue because um, I was gonna open up some of my questions here about the State of the Union with uh, sort of a variation of something my father has always said. When I got into the the business, my father said people read newspapers to uh, confirm what they already think. You know, people people like to be comforted in the idea that uh, that they were right all along, and they're not looking f- uh, necessarily for their minds to be changed or to be uh, you know. Uh, shown that they have uh, been wandering around in the darkness all this time. So when America, or whoever listens to it or watches it or checks out the, uh, the replay, when Americans look at this, do you see anybody in the middle who's going to come off the fence, or is it just going to be the fans and the foes, and that's bright line? Well, I'd say your father is a very wise man, because he certainly is on to something, uh, because the problem of the contemporary period is uh, we have this uh, tremendous polarization, and what that means is most people already have made up their minds. And certainly, two years into the Trump presidency, you know, we all all have seen the various things that he has done. Uh, His base still loves him. Uh, Trump has about an 80% job approval rating among Republicans, and Democrats, of course, hate him. Uh, So that will be a challenging situation for him uh, tonight with the State of the Union address. So how do, is there any way, we were talking a little bit uh, earlier about this idea of him trying to promote unity, the concept of, of unity at least, and have people come together in Washington after all this, uh, uh, after all this acrimony. Um, can he do that? Is he in any position Actually, to do if that? He, if he had done that two years ago, right after he was elected, he could have pulled that off. And I think he could have actually become uh, a reasonably popular uh, president, uh, certainly given you know, that the state of the economy is uh, strong. But that is not how he's run his uh, presidency. I mean, he started being very divisive, criticizing Democrats, uh, insulting opponents, and it just kind of set the tone that was then followed up by a bunch of policy actions that conservatives uh, loved and uh, liberals and Democrats uh, hated. So once you've been doing that for two years, it's hard to go back on that. Even if tonight he talks about bipartisanship, people are going to compare the words and the actions. 
And the idea that, well, you've heard presidents use this speech for a lot of different things over the years, even within the same presidency. Sometimes one speech serves one purpose and one, you know, one speech serves uh, kind of another. I'm wondering, you know, do you see the, the way the Trump uh, State of the Union, the Trump presidency is shaking out? Like, does it remind you of anything? Is it sort of harken back to any of our other presidents or is this just something completely different? Maybe it's, you know, the modern age, the technology that he uses to communicate directly with people. Um, is there anything to compare this to? Well, when most presidents lose big in a midterm election, as uh, Trump did in 2018, they make changes. They seek to work with the opposition party. They view the State of the Union address as a time to reset relations. So Clinton did this after his 1994 losses. Uh, Bush did it after 2006. And Obama did it after his uh, 2010 uh, defeat uh, at the hand of the uh, Tea Party. But so far, Trump refuses to acknowledge that he actually suffered uh, losses. He's continued to insult Democrats uh, since the November elections. And so that's not a very good recipe for uh, doing well in the future. So even if he talks about the need to come together to overcome partisanship, to work together, people are going to want to see words uh, uh, and actions that back up uh, that type of speech. This is WBAI 99.5 FM, and we're streaming live at WBAI.org. I am Celeste Katz. I'm your host tonight for our special pre-State of the Union programming, and we're talking to Daryl West of the Brookings Institution about what we can expect tonight and uh, what we should expect tonight. Um, Professor West, I want to ask you another question about uh, sort of leaning into that same thing about the evolution of of technology and media and communications, because I know you've done a ton of work on that and how these things change sort of our public discourse over time. Um, do you think the State of the Union is still relevant, given the fact that this president in particular uh, communicates so often and so directly via Twitter or social media with the public, and also because people have so many other ways to, to get information? Is this, is this sort of quaint, like quaint antiquated, or does it still matter? I think it still matters, uh, just because the size of the television audience for the State of the Union is bigger than anything else. I mean, even when uh, uh, Trump tweets and you know, he has millions of followers on Twitter, it's still not the magnitude of a State of the Union address. Like, this is the one opportunity when many Americans come together, they either watch the speech or they see the news coverage that comes after the speech. And so you really need to take advantage of that opportunity to outline your priorities, talk about what you're doing, uh, make the argument uh, that things are going well, uh, and the people should uh, stick with you. So, and that actually is, a, a, once again, a very good segue, uh, the idea of people sticking with him. Uh, a lot of times, you know, he loves, he loves a friendly room. He has these campaign-style rallies, he's been having them right along, even before the midterms, certainly during the midterms. He seems to enjoy campaigning, you know, potentially more than he enjoys governing. Um, do you think that, it, as, as somebody who sort of operates that way, um, that he is able to to kind of reach across the aisle in a meaningful way or address anybody else, uh, you know, who might not be sure about him? Or again, do you think that is this, is this State of the Union 
designed to fire up his base? Is it just like wall, 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 immigration, 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 wall, wall, wall? <laughs> I think the State of the Union uh, address will be challenging for him because, as you point out, the two settings where he's really comfortable is tweeting, uh, where he's basically sitting in a room by himself and he can fire off uh, these uh, sharp uh, uh, tweets, or uh, going on the road and uh, having uh, these very large uh, campaign rallies. But there, he's basically speaking to the base. He's speaking to people who agree with him, people who know what his positions are, and most uh, of those people love what he's saying. I think the State of the Union is very challenging because in the auditorium, you know, half the people are Republican, half the people are Democrats. Uh, Democrats, of of course, are not going to be cheering almost all of his uh, policy proposals. And it's just a very different setting. And uh, what I've noticed is it's hard for him to have the same energy in these types of formal speaking uh, settings as what we often see on the road, where he feeds off the fact that the crowd loves him, uh, they're cheering, uh, they're applauding his uh, various uh, lines. In a formal speech like what he's going to give tonight, he will not be getting that positive reinforcement from at least half of the room. And he tends not to do as well in that type of situation. Because he takes it more personally or he gets distracted or he just he feeds off of the adulation or? I think so. Uh, like when he's on the road, uh, clearly he loves uh, being uh, before the audience. Uh, they're uh, cheering uh, his uh, applause uh, lines. Uh, they're basically agreeing with uh, the various things that he's talking about. Tonight, uh, you know, half of the room is not going to be uh, cheering him. They're going to be sitting on their hands. Uh, it'll be apparent uh, to the television uh, audience uh, that uh, many people in the room disagree with him. We see public opinion polling uh, data that shows uh, many people around the country are disagreeing with him. He still has about, you know, a 40% uh, base, uh, but much of the rest of the country is uh, very uh, negative on him. And so I think that affects the way that he delivers uh, these kind of speeches. And it's harder for him to uh, deliver kind of a stand-up speech of this sort when he knows many people in the room do not like what he's saying. Absolutely. And I think that uh, it's, uh, in terms of his style, one of the things I'm just wondering is, can he stay on the teleprompter? Uh, You know, obviously, a lot of work usually goes into uh, crafting a state of the union speech. This is this is not just sort of a, a throwaway rally or or a meeting. This is something that goes down in history, and they put an awful lot of work into to making it pitch perfect. I, I just wonder if he's going to be able to stay on it, or if he gives in to his natural impulse, which is to ad lib. I you know, does he try to throw in like a Pocahontas joke or something like that? Frankly, cause that's another thing that he really enjoys doing is insulting people and seeing the crowd. Uh, you know. Uh, cheer him for it. I mean, his last two State of the Union addresses, he has pretty much uh, stuck to the script because he knows it's an important speech. Uh, They spend hours writing the speech. Uh, He rehearses uh, the speech uh, several uh, times. So there is very little ad-libbing in uh, past years. Uh, But of course, that's always an open uh, question because when he's on the road and doing campaign uh, rallies, he ad-libs all the time, so he's clearly uh, very comfortable. But I'd be surprised if he did that tonight just because he knows the stakes are very high. They put so much effort into kind of working on the language so that it strikes uh, the right tone and there has the, the, the right um, uh, content uh, that he wants to uh, deliver. So I suspect he will uh, stick to that script, even though it's 
unnatural for him to do that in other settings. Well, we will uh, we will soon find out. And uh, Daryl West of the Brookings Institution, where can people find out more about you and your work? Uh, they can visit the Brookings webpage at brookings.edu. We have uh, policy reports online, uh, blog postings, and my uh, book, Divided Politics, Divided Nation, is advertised there as well. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us tonight here on WBAI. And uh, I will definitely be talking to you soon. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Celeste. So uh, we are going to come up to the top of the hour pretty shortly, and we have more guests uh, coming up for you in the second hour of this special programming. This is our special uh, State of the Union sort of pregame show. And again, just to, just to remind you, we are I'll be here with you. I'm Celeste Katz. I am usually the host of Driving Forces here on BAI on Thursdays, but I'm here with you tonight until 9 o'clock, and then we're going to throw it over to uh, our sister station, that's WPFW 89.3 in Washington, and they are going to take it up from there. We will have the simultaneous of the State of the Union address, as well as uh, the um, Democratic response from Stacey Abrams. As you know, and as we discussed a little bit earlier, she is the um, the woman who ran uh, a very, very uh, high profile, but ultimately unsuccessful campaign for governor of Georgia. And she will be uh, also center stage tonight, uh, giving the Democratic uh, reaction to whatever the president has to say. We have some information about it. Uh, we should be getting more as we go on, but we certainly can expect um, some talk about both domestic and foreign policy. can certainly expect uh, there to be some uh, reprise of his comments about immigration, about crime, about the wall. Uh, some of those things are going to be evidenced by uh, the guests that he and the First Lady have invited to uh, to join them for the speech. And similarly, uh, people in, uh, in the audience, uh, the lawmakers who will be attending this event, are bringing guests of their own. And that will tell a very different story, maybe an opposite story. So um, I'm looking forward to uh, getting into that a little bit. Uh, I think we are going to take a short break. We're going to come back at the top of the hour. I just want to remind you, though, we will be taking calls later in the program. And I want to know, does the State of the Union mean anything to you anymore? Does it matter to you anymore? Or is it sort of, you know, old news in, uh, in the age of uh, television and Twitter? And, of course, listener-supported radio. Give us a call, 212-209-2877. That's 212-209. 209-2877. I'm Celeste Katz. You are listening to WBAI 99.5. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Danny Glover. This is Saul Williams. And this is Michael French from Spearhead. And this is WBAI listener supported non-commercial radio in New York. And this is Reverend Jesse Jackson of the Rainbow Push Coalition. Please call and support WBAI non-commercial peace and justice radio in New York. Keep them moving out. This is Bob Law inviting you to join us for the first in a series of community forums being broadcast live here on WBAI. It's Saturday morning, February 9th at 11 a.m. Broadcast live from Mist Harlem. 
46 West 116th Street. Doors open at 10.30 a.m. Now, one of the issues to be addressed, is a black political agenda needed, or will the blue wave serve the interests of black Americans? And let's understand why black women's organizations are beginning to say, respect us. This is a really important community forum, and we're looking for you on Saturday morning, February 9th at 11 a.m. Join me and noted R&B singer and activist Allison Williams as my co-host, live from MIST, 46 West 116th Street in Harlem, and broadcast live right here on 99.5 WBAI. This is Glenn Ford of Black Agenda Report, urging you to join the Black Alliance for Peace campaign to end AFRICOM. The U.S. Africa Command, AFRICOM, embedded in 53 African nations, where it foments increased militarism and violence against civilian populations. The Black Alliance for Peace demands the withdrawal of all U.S. and NATO forces from Africa and the closure of all U.S. and NATO bases throughout the world. It's calling upon the Congressional Black Caucus to oppose AFRICOM and hold